Well, amen, and thank you to those who made special effort to lead us in special music this special Sunday. It's safe to say that for Jesus' friends and for his family, it had been a tumultuous week for all of the community, really, but especially for the family and friends of Jesus. Many strange and difficult things had occurred. The Passover meal that had been celebrated, well, it was different. It was disturbing. As Jesus spoke about his betrayal by someone close to him, by one of the very 12 in the room. And then Jesus spoke of his body being broken and his blood shed for sin as if he were some kind of new and better Passover lamb. Then there was the exchange of 30 pieces of silver to the hand of Judas, who did in fact betray Jesus, handing his identity and his location over to the spiritual leaders that were hunting him. Then that was followed by the sudden arrest of Jesus. Peter's resistance to it, the cutting off of an ear of a Roman soldier, and the healing of it by Jesus himself. But it didn't matter. It still hastened to an unjust trial at the hands of Pilate. And then hardest of all to witness was the beating suffered and the bearing and carrying of the cross while undergoing the scorn, the insults, the mockery inflicted by the crowds who just days earlier had used palm branches to signify and to praise the significance of Jesus. And then last of all, it, it concluded for this community, for these friends and family members of Jesus, with the horrific crucifixion and death of this innocent and good man on a cross as if he were a criminal. All of that is going on. All of that swirling gloom and darkness, as heavy as it is, all of that which is bad and confusing and depressing and dark leads us to the moment of the passage that we're about to read. It's the third day. Jesus has talked about the third day, but his, his words were just further confusing. No one understood. And with all that swirling darkness and confusion of that week, we come to John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And this account, this historical account given to us, give your attention with that context in mind to God's word. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. 
So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let's pray that God would bless our understanding of his word. <clears throat> Lord, would you be our teacher this morning? Would you be our preacher this morning? Would you open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and soften stubborn hearts to the truth and power of the resurrection? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's Easter Sunday, y'all. It's a spring day. Thankfully, the sun is shining and the temperatures are warming. I'm not sure what happened yesterday. Thankful for the weather we have today. And I don't know your homes or your household, but I presume that maybe even already, some of you children have awakened to special things. 
maybe some candies, maybe some pastel colors, things made of plastic. I don't know. All of you look like Easter eggs to me, dressed in your pastels and your colors. It's what we do at Easter. It's what our culture does. Easter is fun. You will have conversations today about ham for lunch or whatever it is your family will do. And there will probably be conversations about what are the best Easter candies, what are the worst Easter candies. And yet, as fun as all that is, I'm pretty sure that some of the homes, some of the children, the day will include tears. Something will not go right. Someone will get a a larger chocolate bunny than someone else, or someone will drop some candy, or someone will lose an egg hunt, or you fill in the blank. I don't know what you do. But there are going to be tears on Easter. We put the emphasis on all kinds of things. But this morning, I do want to talk about Easter tears. But a different kind of tear than maybe the ones some of you will experience today. The joys of Easter today, the tears of Easter today, enjoy those. Enjoy them. We'll enjoy them. But for these few minutes together in worship and hearing God's Word, let's consider the tears at that first Easter and the joy that expelled them. And let's make sure we individually, by faith, know what it is the Lord has done for us. When he asks that question of Mary, he he asks it of us too. Why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for on this Easter morn? Those are Easter questions, and the passage gives us Easter answers this morning. And it's all very good news. Two simple points this morning. And the first is this. The truth of the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection. The passage that we've read, as well as the other gospel accounts of the empty tomb, you must determine if you believe them to be history or if, like many in our culture, you disregard them as legend as myth, as feel-good stories. That's what the text presses on everyone who reads it. Do you believe this? Is this the good news that the church has historically celebrated, or have you discarded it? I had a professor in seminary who liked to say to us when dealing with passages like this, read it. Read it on its own terms and ask yourself, Does this author sound like he is giving you history or does he sound like he's giving you legend and myth? And so I would say the same thing. Read it and hear it for what it is. It reads like history as a historical account, an eyewitness account, because that's what we believe that it is. C.S. Lewis says this in his comments about the Gospels. He said, I've been reading poems romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all of my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views, he says. 
Either this is reportage, i.e. historical account, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative, which did not exist in that day. That's his point. And so how do you take this passage? Is it history or is it legend? It's given to us as an historical account. It reads as such. The testimony of the other gospel writers testifies as such, which leads us to conclude this. By faith, it is a supernatural event. There is something happening here unlike the world on its natural course would ever know or could ever know. Tim Keller says this about the supernatural nature of the resurrection. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That is the ultimate question for every one of us on Easter morning and on every morning that we breathe. What do you do? What do you believe about this Jesus? There really are two responses. And the response of our world, it's not a response of faith. It's a response of naturalism. Seeing and believing that everything we experience has to be explained in natural Terms that all things must only conform to the natural, known, predictable, repeatable order and function. That's naturalism and that's a worldview. The question the text asks of all of us is Is that your worldview? Or, by faith, are you a supernaturalist? Supernaturalism being that God, the creator of all things, can break the bounds of the ordinary and do extraordinary, supernatural things when he so chooses. And by faith, that's how we handle a text like this. A passage about the resurrection of the dead other passages about miracles, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And so Easter asks the question of all of us, what's your view of this world? The God who made it, the God who says he has redeemed it. Do you have a naturalistic view of this world? Or do you have a supernatural, a category for understanding that God can raise dead bodies from the grave? We're a supernatural believing people. The church always has been. And if the resurrection is true, then that tells us point number two. There is a power in the resurrection that you must know, that you must believe, because it changes everything. The power of the resurrection, very simply for this morning, two things. What's given to us here in Scripture about the work of Christ 
is that in his resurrection from the dead, as we've heard in all the passages we've read this morning, at the heart of that lies the defeat of death. The defeat of death, the defeat of sin, of Satan, and of hell forever. That's what we believe by faith. That Jesus, having been raised from the dead, has defeated death itself, the power of sin, the person of Satan, and the very existence of hell for God's people forever. Our shorter catechism sums up these truths in its own little pithy way. It asks the question about the state of sin that the world is in. And it says this, What is the misery of that estate where mankind fell? And it says, All mankind... All of us, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, and are so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pain of hell forever. That's what the Scriptures testify, and it's what we believe as a church. That's the state of humanity. It's the state of all of us. But then question number 26 summarizes what Christ has done for us in his resurrection. What he has done for us as king. And that question and answer is this. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. In ruling and defending us. And in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. In restraining and conquering all of his enemies and all of our enemies. Now what is enemy number one? That he is restrained and that he is conquered. It's death itself. It's the power of sin over life. And at Easter, we, resur- we, we celebrate the resurrection truth that Christ has had power to put sin to death, to put death to death in the life of Christ that has triumphed over the grave. You know, for those of you who've been joining us for weeks where we've studied Hebrews, we've, we've continued to look backwards in the Old Testament at promises that God had made and how He's fulfilling those promises person by person, character by character, episode by episode. And that is precisely what we believe is happening here. The person of Jesus has come. And He was first promised when? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When the serpent had led the woman and the man to sin, God promised that He would send one singular masculine pronoun. He would send one to crush the head of the serpent. And that is precisely what has happened here in the death of Christ in his resurrection from the dead. He has crushed the head of the serpent and has put death to death in the life of Christ. And in that way, we say and we continue to say, God is at work. He is answering that promise. He is fulfilling that promise. And it came in such a way that no one could anticipate it. No one saw it coming this way. 
And here is Mary Magdalene who had seen, who had beheld the goodness, the mercy, the tenderness of Jesus, had had evil spirits cast out of her by this tender Savior Jesus, and she's at his grave mourning his loss, feeling all the weight of emotion just as you and I do when we say farewell to loved ones. And she never saw it coming this way. She couldn't see it coming this way. And she's asked that Easter question. Why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And little did she know, little would anyone know, that she had no reason to cry and that the one she was looking for was breathing and living right before her very eyes. That's the question and answer of Easter. Why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? The first power of the resurrection is that it has defeated sin and death and Satan and hell forever. And we celebrate that this morning. That's what we're singing about. That's what we're worshiping together as we gather in the presence of God. But the second thing we celebrate this morning at Easter is that in this Easter resurrection, the power of this event, because it is true, He has given us a definition of who we are that is filled with hope that changes everything. He has defined for us what real hope is and the power that it brings into a sinner's life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds we have been healed. And there's your hope. There's your definition of who you are if you're a Christian. If your faith is in Jesus, he has defined you with a hope that your sins are put to death. Death itself has been overcome for you. And as we heard from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in our pastoral prayer, he wants you to be encouraged and to encourage one another in your dark moments, in your sad moments that death is not your ultimate outcome. But there will be a day where the dead will be drawn from their graves and will rise up and meet their Lord in the air. And that those still living, same thing, they will follow second suit to those in their graves. That's the defining moment, the defining work of the power of the resurrection. And yet we live in a world that dismisses it, discards it, because we're naturalistic in our thinking. But not you, believer in Jesus. You're supernatural in your thinking. You believe that the God of the universe can break the bounds of the ordinary, and that he has, and that he will, and that it gives you great hope of what your future is, and those who are in Christ who have gone before you. There are two images I'd like to leave you with this morning as we celebrate Easter about how joy really does overcome sorrow. It's supposed to in the Christian life. Two images. One is from literature and the other is from Scripture. And the first image is from this. It's, it's from the Lord of the Rings. 
from the return of the king, and those of you who, who know the story well probably know what I'm going to say. But listen to this verbal picture of how joy overpowers grief. He gives us a, a visual here that truly captures the power of resurrection. Sam gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up. And laughing, he sprang from his bed. How do I feel, he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. Beautiful imagery of longing to laugh again, longing to be merry again, to enjoy people again. And he says it's like spring after winter, and we get that today after yesterday. The brightness of the sun, the sunlight on the leaves, the transition from death and from cold to life and to hope, and it's a picture of resurrection. And I wonder if your heart has ever been warmed by that that you have known well this life and this world and all of its naturalism that has no hope. And God has worked resurrection hope in you for yourself, for his church, where it's like the sun is shining again. After months of cold and wet and gray rain, that resurrection hope is real and it redefines you. It redefines the world in which we live. Have you known that kind of resurrection joy that can overcome grief and sorrow. That's the example from literature. But the same kind of imagery and examples given in Scripture. And this morning I'll close with this. It's from Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. Listen to this same resurrection hope and how sorrow and grief are dispelled by gospel joy. The psalmist says... The Lord has turned my weeping and wailing into dancing and song. He has removed my sackcloth and grief, and he's clothed me with great joy. My heart sings his praise and cannot be silent. O oh Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Do you hear it? It's the same imagery, the same joy that we in this life dominated by grief by sorrow, by loss, by disappointment, 
the gospel breaks in and dispels all of it as untrue. If your faith is in Jesus, the one who has overcome sin and death and hell forever, you have much to sing about. You have much to rejoice in because you have been redefined. Everything about you. You've been redefined. You've been reoriented. And it's called the Christian life, believing in the gospel of Easter. And there's a hope to it that the world does not understand. But the Easter question for every one of us is, why are you crying? What is it that has weighed so heavily upon you that you're not believing the truth of the good news that God has given you in Christ Jesus? Why are you crying? Why are you in dismay? The gospel is true. It changes everything. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for the good news of great joy that you have pronounced to your church. That because of the Lord Jesus, our sins have been dealt with. The grave has been overcome. That Satan and hell are defeated forever. And so, Lord Jesus, would you help us to believe? More than a feeling, Lord, would you work this kind of hope in the gospel deeply into our hearts, into our minds, and into our lives. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.